If you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it? Uh, if you don't have one, there should be one that's tucked into the, uh, the pew that's right in front of you. And turn to the Gospel of John. Yes, I'm still in the Gospel of John, and I will be until I'm 50. So we will be in, in it until I'm 50. If, uh, if, you, if you would mind, go ahead and turn to chapter, turn to chapter 8. And we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 20. So follow along with me if you will. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And your lot is written that the testimony of two people is true, and I am the one who bears witness about myself, and my Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Join me just real quick for just a, a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your example. Lord, I am feeling particularly on edge today, not just because I jumped up here last minute, but just because it is the way that life is going. And so I pray that you put me off to the side and that the Holy Spirit, you would, you would speak God's word through my broken and shaking voice. Thank you for your love and your pursuit of us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the righteousness that you give us as a gift. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we've been going through John. Uh, I was going to use this. I think I might have changed my mind. We've been going through John at Redbird for the last 10 months, and we hit chapter 8 last week. And I preached uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 in, in pretty solid detail. But there's a speed bump here in, in chapter 8. And I have to address it because this, this shake-up in the beginning of chapter 8 causes a little bit of dust. And it, it, the, the, the upset, if you will, or the speed bump or the shake-up, whatever you want to call it, is really reserved just for the first 11 verses of John 8, which is the woman... Famous story, caught in the act of adultery, she's brought to Jesus, uh, people are ready to kill her, and Jesus shows her mercy, he shoes away her accusers, um, and then he tells her, I do not condemn you, go your way and, and sin no more. And the reason why there's a shake up there, and, and the reason why I have to, have to address it this morning is because the, the lingering dust in the air kind of lands on the text that I just read to you, that we're going to consider this morning. And so I've got to talk about verses 1 through 11 just a little bit to get us into verses 12 through 20. And the shakeup is this. And I don't have time to get into this deeply, and I don't want to alarm anybody. And if you have any questions about this later, please come and find me. Or you can listen to the Redbird sermon from last week. Uh, I think that they're up. They should be up, or they'll be up very soon. And, and I go into much further and in, in greater detail in that sermon. I just don't have time to address all of the points of it this morning. But verses 1 through 11, the, woman of the story of the woman caught in adultery is not in the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John. And so most commentators and scholars and, and, and biblical textual critics don't think that the story actually belongs there. Now I don't want that to alarm anybody because soon as, as soon as somebody says something like that, our proclivity is to go, well, how do I know 
that that's the only time that that happened. What, where, what else was added or taken out that shouldn't have been added or shouldn't have been taken out? And listen, there are, there are thousands and thousands and thousands. The last number that I read was over 20,000 ancient manuscripts just from the New Testament alone that are written over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years, and they all match identically minus 1%. There's a 1% variant in the text, and it's never anything that deals with any real doctrine of the Christian faith. It's always little details about, about it's, a, it's an added verse where it gives a little bit of a detail here or a little bit of detail there. And I, I, I have to give you one example. In chapter 5, the man who's laying at the pool of Bethesda, some of your Bibles will have, it'll go verse 1, 2, 3, 5. And maybe you've never noticed that. There's other translations that have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Now the inclusion of verse 4 is just a, it's a verse that just says the people were laying by the pool because they believed that an angel came and stirred the waters. And that's why they were laying by the pool. Now, if there was actually an angel that stirred the waters, or if people just believed that there was an angel that stirred the, that, that stirred the waters, and then, you know, people, the first one into the water after the stirring would be healed, commentators don't think that that verse actually belongs there. They think that it was put in later to help uh, the reader understand why are all these crippled people laying by this water. But it really doesn't bear any weight on Scripture. And that's, so that's, that's that. I just, I have to say that. I have to get it out. The Bible, 99% of all the manuscripts we have match identically to the one that I have in my hand right here. And that 1% variance is radically insignificant. And so this story in verses 1 through 11 is Scripture. Every, every commentator, every translator, every theologian believes that it is authentic scripture that was written by the hand of a biblical author. It just doesn't belong right he here specifically. A lot of people think that it belongs in the Gospel of Luke. And the style and the, the feel and the language of the story is much more uh, Luke than it is John. So the reason why I bring that up is because last week I had to, I had to address that in, in great detail. And again, please, if you're alarmed by that, come talk to me. I just, I can't. I don't have the time to get into it this morning any, any further than that. So the reason why I bring it up is because we have a flow of thought. that We have a, um, Jesus' teaching, and this story sort of interrupts that teaching. And I want to I piece this together for us because when I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't understand. You know, the Bible is so foreign to us in so many ways. It's, it's culturally foreign to us. We're removed by a couple thousand years plus. We're in a completely different culture. Most of us have probably never been to any of these places. And I, I really, I think that the Bible lost a lot, of its, a lot of its oomph with me because I was reading these names in these places and I didn't, I don't know what Capernaum is. I don't know what Galilee is. I don't know what the Sea of Galilee is. I don't know what Jerusalem is, really. And so I was so far removed that as I've, as I've become a Bible teacher and have just sort of on my own for the last several years studied these places and the culture, it's just become more real. Because these are, these are people. They're human beings. And they do very human things. And they say very human things. And I think that there's some of that, re that relatable humanity that's missed just because we're reading about a place and a time that we have no familiarity with at all. And I wanna, I wanna address that a little bit. I wanna fix that a little bit. And this may not be the kind of stuff that you lay awake on your bed at night and you, and you, you know, why are we here and what is it all about? I will get to that here in a few minutes, I promise. We will get into some deep Christian gospel. 
But I want to take some time and just piece together a couple of things here because I think that it's interesting. And if you go home and look into this on your own, you're going to find the commentators and you're going to listen to other sermons where it's addressed. And I don't want you to think, well, why didn't Ian tell me that? He's a Bible teacher. He's a pastor. He should have brought that up. So I'm kind of covering my bases, but also this is fascinating stuff. So we're going to bounce back and forth between chapter, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 for just a couple of minutes here. If you turn to chapter 7 and you look at the last thing Jesus says in chapter 7, and I, I've got red letters, so I'm cheating. It's verse 37 and 38. Now, we're, in the, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's a week-long celebration in Jerusalem, and it's historians like Josephus tell us that it was the most festive of all the celebrations. And Jesus goes up at the, at the last day in verse 37. He goes up on the last day of the festival, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the last thing Jesus says in chapter 7, but there's still several verses. And so the camera is sort of on Jesus. He's teaching. He's, He's saying something very important. And then verse 40, the camera very quickly pans to people's response of him. Verse 40 through 44, people say that he's, people heard this and they said, he's really the Christ. He's really the prophet. Or maybe he's not because Isn't the prophet supposed to come from Bethlehem, which Jesus did? That's a different sermon. And then some people say he needs to be arrested. So we pan from Jesus' teaching to the response that people have of Jesus. And then the the men that came to arrest arrest Jesus leave without him. In verse 46, the officers are like, yo, where's he at? And they say, no man spoke like this man. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And then Nicodemus chimes in from chapter 3 and says, "We we don't condemn a man before we give him before we give him a proper trial. So Jesus gets cut off almost mid-sentence. And then the camera focuses on people's response, the men that were going to arrest him, and then this dialogue between the Pharisees and Nicodemus. And then we have chapter 8, 1 through 11, which, all due respect, probably shouldn't be there. And so if we, if we just set that all aside and just focus on what it is that Jesus is saying, chapter 7 verse 38 and chapter 8, verse 12, are probably actually what Jesus was saying. So if we read it together, we get this. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said. Well, let me, let me start over. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And again, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If you take away the reaction of the people, you, put, you leave the camera on Jesus and assume that John chapter 8, 1 through 11 belongs in Luke, that's what you get. That's, and that's what most commentators actually, most, most scholars and textual critics believe that that's what happened, is that this is actually one statement and it got, it got, chap, it got 1 through 11 put in there. Doesn't mean it's not scripture, doesn't mean that it's not, in, it, that it's not an errant scripture, it just means that it's in the wrong spot. So this is Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying. I am water, come to drink of me. And I am light, anyone who follows me does not walk in darkness. You have your thirst quenched and you know where you are going. This is what Jesus was trying to say. This is what Jesus was getting at. And to, to paint this picture even more full, as I was reading this, I, th- I thought, okay, so here's what Jesus is teaching. And it's important that he's teaching that because he's in a real place and he's in a real time in history. He's at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we talked earlier about the, there was a ceremony that was, 
uh, that was held in the temple where the people would come and they would lay branches on the altar of burnt offering, and then the high priest would come and would pour water over that. And it was part of the ceremony that was reminding them, it was a ceremony that was, that was giving thanks in memory of the time when, when the Lord miraculously brought water from the rock at, at Horeb in Exodus chapter 17. And they had this part, as part of their feast, as a ceremony, as a part of their feast, it's a tradition to remember that. This was a feast of remembrance. And that's where Jesus is. He's at this feast of remembrance, and he brings, he's, during the ceremony where there's the water being poured, he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. The, the water at the rocket horror, your, your physical thirst, I am the water that quenches your spiritual thirst. I satisfy you forever. You can drink water physically, you'll get thirsty again. Drink of me, i.e. believe in me, and be satisfied for the rest of your life and all of eternity. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. And then the very next thing that comes out of his mouth is, I am light. And so this is significant. And we don't really understand what's going on here because we don't understand the culture. We don't understand the feast. We don't really understand what's going on. And so I want to paint a picture for you. And we're not going to get probably past verse 12 today. That's reserved. If you want to hear more, come to Redbird tonight at 6. Love to see you. But I want to, I want to jump to verse 20 because verse 20 has a key here for us to understand more holistically what it is that's going on and why Jesus is saying this. And is he pulling these metaphors out of nowhere? Is he making this up? What is this all about? Verse 20 says this. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he's in the temple and he's in the treasury. What's that? I don't know. I don't know. I read that, how many times have I read that? And I was like, I don't know, you know what, what does that mean? And so I deep dove into it. And it's actually fascinating. John put that in there on purpose. There's a reason why John mentions that he's in the temple, in the treasury specifically. And I wanna talk about that because it helps us wrap our minds around the, the place where Jesus was, the people that he was talking to, the things that they were thinking about. And so it's kinda like this. Imagine with me, this might be really silly, I'm gonna wing it. I promised to do this yesterday, so cut me some slack. Let's pretend, just for fun, that Jesus was born in Portland, Oregon in 1990, and he listened to Nirvana. And then we, so, and then we hear these stories. So let's pretend that we're hearing these stories after Jesus' after Jesus's life. Let's say that we're in the future some amount of time. This isn't going to be perfect. Give me some grace. So we're, we're a little bit in the future. Jesus was born in Portland, Oregon in 1990, and then we hear this story. We hear these stories of Jesus was walking through the fields of Corbett, Oregon. And then he rode a Vespa down Highway 30, old Highway 30, and he made it to Fairview. And in Fairview, he met a woman at a bar who he talked to, offered her the drink that really satisfies, and she ran into Fairview and she told all of her friends and most of Fairview got saved. And then from Fairview, I'm just making this up, from Fairview he made his way west into Gresham. And in Gresham, he fed 5,000 people with a basket of fish and chips from a local pub. <laughs> and we hear these stories. And then, and then Jesus went to a wedding that was held outside of the parking lot at the Copper Penny in the Lentz District of Southeast Portland and turned water into wine. Any of you who have been to the Copper Penny, <laughs> it's not there anymore. Thank goodness. And then he went from Lentz and he, and, he, and he headed north on MOK. And then he crossed over the great, the great Willamette River into the west side 
over the Broadway Bridge. And then there at Christmas time, he sat and he taught in Pioneer Courthouse Square, those who were those who are among him. We would read that, and most of us, Portland's sort of a transient city, so many of us may not know what that is, but anyone who's been here for more than two years knows everything that I just said. You've probably been to Corbett, you've at least heard of it, you know old Highway 30, you've probably walked all through those hills, Angels Rest and Multnomah Falls and all the rest. You've been in Fairview, you've been in Gresham, some of you might have been at the Copper Penny, don't tell anybody about that. You know MLK, you know the Broadway Bridge, you, you would know these things, you would know the culture, and you know that at, at Pioneer Courthouse Square during Christmas time, there's always, this, there's always the big Christmas tree and there's an there's a annual lighting of the Christmas tree. And if we heard that, we would, we would know what that meant. Let's say that Jesus got there and while he was teaching, he said, I am the tree of life or something like that. And we would go, okay, I, I get it. There's the Christmas tree, there's the ceremonial lighting every year, I get it. And it would just be that much more understandable and that much more within our grasp because it's a culture and it's a place and a time that we actually understand. And I want to bring that out here a little bit. And so when John says that Jesus was in the temple, he was teaching in the treasury, that is significant. And I never took the time to look into what that really meant. And it's a bummer because it's beautiful. The, the temple in Jerusalem had different courts. It had basically different layers. The very front door, you walk in the front door, and that was known as the court of the Gentiles, and everybody was allowed in there. It's actually where the turning over of the tables occurred early in Jesus' ministry. That's where that went down. Everybody was allowed in there. Jew, Gentile, it didn't matter. The second door, or the second entrance into the next layer of the, of the was court number two. It was actually known as the court of the women. It was also called, it was referred to as the treasury. And the reason it was called the court of the women is because that was as, fur, that was as far as women could go. They could go into that second court area and that was it. And it made sense that the treasury was there because men and women both were, were allowed in there so you could get the most money. And what the treasury was, it was, it was this is crazy, it was 13 horn-shaped receptacles that lined a wall. There was 13 of them. And they were, there's a little bit of conjecture. Some people think that they were big and, big and, and wide in the, in the opening and then they narrowed down into a bucket. Other people say that it was more like a, think of like a, one of those big water containers like we have in the back. It was, it was closed up top and it had a big, a big belly you could fill with coins. It doesn't really matter. It's just what historians kind of argue about. But this is where the temple got their money. And the first and the second of these receptacles was where people would put their half a shekel as a temple tax. Everybody had to do that. The, second, the third and the fourth were the money that women would, would spend on pigeons that they would then sacrifice to, for their, their purification sacrifice after they had children. The fifth receptacle was money for wood that people would use for the altar. The sixth was for the incense of the, on the altar. The seventh was money that would go to the golden vessel fund, so to clean them up, to keep them nice and shiny, or to replace them if they were broken. And then the vessels eight through 13, where people would put their money in, that just was a general fund for the temple. So this, this, is the, this is the treasury. That's why it's called the treasury. It was the second temple court where the women were allowed and, and, and no further. That's why it has its name. That's what it is. But there's something even more interesting about the temple court. It's that, because people, people knew this, but we wouldn't know this, during the, fe during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, that second, that second temple court was the designated place where they would have a ceremony that was called the illumination of the temple. And they had 75-foot candelabras, and that, that's a candelabra. It's a candle that holds many candles. 
And these things were 75 feet tall. And I don't know how many candles they held, but all the historians agree that whenever these, there was four of them, four of these, these 75-foot candelabras, and when all of them were lit, you, it, the, the light would reflect off the walls of the temple and it would give light to all, not, not a lot of light, but the light would reflect through the, through the entire city of Jerusalem. And so if you were standing back into the hills and you looked at the temple from afar against the dark Mediterranean night sky, it was this bright, shining, diamond-looking building just reflecting this radiant light that went out all over the city of Jerusalem. And it's here in that temple or in that court right next to those candelabras that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He got that from somewhere. He's saying something. He's saying something to a group of people that know what he's talking about. If he was in Pioneer Courthouse Square at Christmas and said, I am the tree of life, we would go, oh, clever, get it, yep. He's in the temple, he's in the second court, and he is saying, I, I am the light. I am the light of the world, not the light of life, sorry. I am the light of the world. So this is the backdrop. This is where we are with Jesus. This is, this is the context, this is the setup where he is giving this teaching. He is the water and he is the light. And so now, second gear. What does light do? Not how it acts within itself, but its, it's most basic utility for us is, it, is it, it, it reveals. It shows us that there's stairs here. It shows us that there's a podium here. We bump our toes whenever the lights are off. Light reveals what's there. It shows us the truth of the situation physically. It, 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 it illuminates the area that is immediately around us in a physical sense. But it's also our, the, the number one way that we refer metaphorically to understanding something or learning something. We say we had a light bulb moment or somebody believes uh, something and we'll say, ah, see, they, we convinced them to come onto our, like, our ideological side, and then they're like, oh, yeah, I think you're right. And we say, ah, they had a light bulb moment or something like that. It's, it's, it always refers to revealing what is around us physically or clarity of the mind or understanding of the mind. Light reveals. And so what does Jesus reveal as light? If Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what is he saying? I think it's interesting to note that the very first utterance that we have of God in the Bible, the very first thing that he does is he says something. And this is, this is, this is wild because it's sort of all connected to each other because the very first thing that God does is he speaks. But when he speaks, he creates. So he reveals that he is a creative God. And the very first thing that he creates by speaking is he says, let there be light. It's the very first thing that he creates. There is Light is always attributed and affiliated with God. And God, the result of God is always light, one way or another. You think of Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, riding on his, on his donkey or his horse or whatever it was. And it says, now as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. The Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 7. Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John. And it says, there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Remember in, uh, in Exodus 34, Moses comes down the mountain with the two tablets after meeting with the Lord, and it says that his face shone because he was talking to the Lord, and it freaked everybody out, and he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't handle it. 
So radiant is God's light that just being in his presence, Moses' face was shining. And this is, this is one of the most intriguing, this is a beautiful verse, and I'm really excited to see how this, what this actually is like whenever we get there. But in Revelation 21, we read this. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Light is always affiliated with God. Light Light wins out. Where God comes, illumination comes. Revelation comes. So what does Jesus reveal? And here's just some very easy, quick bullet points. Jesus reveals who God is. Jesus is a revelation to us of God's character. Jesus is is God's character embodied and living here. Colossians chapter 1 says this really well. Paul writes these words. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the, he is the image of the invisible God. When, in John chapter 1, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God's word. We, we reveal ourselves to one another. This is all review, I know, but it helps sometimes to review. When we, re- we reveal ourselves to one another through our words, and when God speaks his character, whenever he tells Moses, I am, I am compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, that those characteristics are embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight, this morning, I get red bird in the morning mixed up a lot. If you're here this morning and you're wondering who God is, look at Jesus. He's, he is God in the flesh. If God was to describe himself with his words, which he does, that is exactly who Jesus is in the flesh. Jesus reveals to us, he is the clearest communication to us of who who God actually is. Hebrews 1, it's classic, but I got to read it. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Which is another thing that Jesus reveals. He reveals who God is, and he reveals why and how this world came to be, where the universe came from. When I was growing up, on my skateboard in Portland, Oregon, I was told that a couple of rocks collided in outer space and sometime between 100 and 300 trillion years, billion years, we're here. It just happened, it was an accident. It was all happenstance, doesn't mean anything, it was just an accident in the sky. This is what John chapter one says. All things were made through him, speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word is a he. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And to go back to Colossians chapter 1, listen to this again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
I've got to go there because maybe some of you weren't here the last time I spoke. The people of, the people of ancient Greece thought that the, that the way that the universe was held together, there's, there's, there's night and there's day and there's life and there's death and the, the ice melts and it becomes water and there's all this movement. How is this? How is this? How is everything always in flux and changing and living and dying and yet remaining the same and intact? And they used this, they, they referred to this power that held everything together as the logos. And what John the, the apostle is saying in this word is, it's not, a, it's not an impersonal power that's holding everything together. It's a person and his name is Jesus. He is God revealed. And he is logic revealed. Sometimes people will replace the word logos with the word logic. Because to the Greeks it, it essentially meant the exact same thing. Jesus reveals who God is. He reveals how the universe came and how it is sustained. And he reveals God's law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And this is a pretty robust, a robust idea here, far more robust than I ever imagined because I always thought that the law was just rules that you had to follow. I didn't even really know why, right? Like, do we think about why a lot? I mean, especially if you're, if you're here and, you're, and you're, you're searching, you're, you're trying this thing out, you're trying church out. And I just met two people last week that were here for the first time. So there, there might be some of you in this room that are, that are curious about this. Jesus reveals God's law, and it's not just arbitrary rules that God set up. He intensifies the law. It's, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he, he, he accentuates it. He's, in Matthew 5, some of you are familiar with this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here's, here's just, a perfect, just a couple of examples. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Fair rule. Most of us have probably been obedient to that one. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Again, maybe one that we have so far been able to uphold. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And there's many more examples. Matthew 5, go check it out. But he's revealing God's law. He's saying, I didn't come to get rid of it. I actually came to show you how intense it is. It's not just about behavior modification. It's about having a, trans, a, a transformation of your heart. What you think matters. What you desire actually matters. It's not just what you do. I can have horrible, lustful thoughts all day long and just not act on them and think, okay, well, good, I'm cool. And Jesus says, no, your heart, it's your heart. I'm going for your heart. So he reveals God's law not only in the way that he teaches it, but he lived it out. Open the Gospels. Just read about Jesus' life. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. And it's easy to fall in love with him when you look at his compassion, when you look at his wisdom, when you look at his wit. The story of the woman caught in adultery, I mean, take, go home and, and read that. It's fascinating that the, the wisdom that he, that he exercised, whenever these guys come barging into his Bible study, they throw this woman before him. I mean, absolutely the most suffocatingly terrifying thing that could happen to somebody, especially because in that, in that sad culture, women weren't thought of highly already. They're going in and they, they're, they're, it says that they're trying to test him. They're trying to put him in a, in a pinch. 
And with, I mean, when you stop and you think about it and you read it again and again, he, he doesn't even acknowledge them. He bends down on the ground and he starts writing in the sand. And nobody knows what he wrote, but at the very least, what he did is, you know, like when you go for a high five and someone doesn't see you, and it's so awkward, and you just don't know what to do with your hands? Imagine, like, barging in, angry, demanding, and the person that you're looking for an answer from just kind of snubs you, just ignores you. You're not as powerful as you think. You're not as scary as you think. You're coming in here with this woman. I'm not taking the bait. Just took the air right out of their tires. Amazing wisdom. Amazing wisdom. You who have no sin, throw the first stone. It's a whole other sermon, but his wisdom is fascinating. He reveals God's law. He lives it out. And by living it out, he not only shows us how human beings were meant to live, how human beings were actually made to function, which is a very just, it's a very pragmatic and almost mechanical thing. If, if you think about it like, if you think about it like a, like a machine, my relative of, of mine, I'm not going to name her, but she got this generator in case the power goes out, and this thing's like, it looks like a Star Trek toy. You know, it's got knobs, and it's got toggles, and it's got buttons, and it's got hose extensions, and it's got all this stuff, and, and I've been watching YouTube videos trying to get my Google degree to figure out how to have, get this thing rolling, and if you put the wrong oil in, if you hook it up to the wrong kind of power, if you, if you mess up your junction box in your house, I mean, there's, it's very intricate. And I can't just plug it in and say, well, I hope for the best, because you'll destroy it. And the human life is the same way. We were designed to live a certain way. And our culture, our world is a pretty good example of what happens when billions of people just do their own thing. And crime is skyrocketing in every major city of the U.S., Whatever your opinion is, the, the, the mess that happened in Afghanistan, I mean, it's just, it's just one thing after another. We murder each other, we rape each other, we steal from one another, we lie to one another. We are completely malfunctioning because we have deviated from Jesus' law. And when we look at the way that Jesus lives, we see the way that humans are meant to live. He says it with his mouth. You've heard it, do not murder, I'm telling you, check your heart. You've heard it, do not, do not commit adultery, I'm telling you, check your heart. It goes deeper than your actions and watch the way that I live. And he lives it out. And when he lives it out, he shows us what humans are supposed to be like and he shows us just how much we can't be that. Which is, for some people, that's where it ends for them. For some people, they think Jesus is the archetypal, he's he's the ideal and I can't ever be that. He's just this judge. He's always telling me where I'm messing up. And they leave it there. And they reject, they reject the God of the Bible because they, because they either don't know or they just don't know enough. And I thought that for years and for years and for years that God was, that Jesus in the flesh was this, just this judge. Just this like spitting out the chicken bones and popping his knuckles and just like, just looking at me in disdain like, who's this kid? Because I can't live up, I can't live up to your standards, man. I can't. My heart is evil. My mind is evil. But in showing us God's law, he also shows us, well, I'm not going to go there yet. He shows us his law. He shows us, he shows us the law. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet 
and a light unto my path. Again, illuminating the way. How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to live? Your word illuminates the way that I'm supposed to run my life. He reveals his supremacy. Jesus, as the light, reveals the supremacy of who he is. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. There is, in the life. There is no other way to the Father except through me. And boy, does that offend our modern culture. It's cool to search. It's cool to be spiritual, whatever that means. But as soon as you land on the person of Jesus and say, Jesus is God in the flesh. There is no other name under heaven by which a person might be saved, Acts 4. People get mad. People get mad about that. And friends, we have, that's where we have to draw a line. Always with grace, always with love, always with patience. But we cannot skimp. Jesus is it. Salvation is literally in, in the balance. If people don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to seek and save them from their sins, they're, they're, they're in trouble. And we cannot, we cannot dilute the message to make them feel better. If we have to hurt them to wake them up with some hard truth, so be it. That's an act of mercy. I have been cut open by doctors many times because they were doing me good. They didn't cut me open to hurt me. They cut me open to, to help me. And sometimes we have to do the, the work of tough love. And this is something that we're going we're gonna to get pushback on, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is supreme, he is utmost, the ultimate, he is optimum, he is the premier. Again, there's no other name by which someone might be saved. He reveals his supremacy. Some, some, a fancy pants word for this is he's, he's Christo-exclusive. There's nobody but him. He is premier, he is optimum. There is, there is no other name by which you might be saved. But he also reveals his mercy. This is what I almost jumped to too soon. He reveals his mercy, and this is, where, this is where his kindness leads us to repentance. He reveals the law, and he doesn't budge on that. We have to deal with that. But he also, he also reveals his great mercy. Jesus as the light reveals his great mercy. His jurisdiction, his rule, and his authority dominates nothing less than the whole expanse of the cosmos, and that includes humanity. He has power over us, and he invites us in. This, this is his mercy. He invites us in. Our, uh, our text today finishes, anyone, excuse me, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there is that word again. That word comes out of Jesus' mouth again and again and again and again. Whoever Whoever. He said it in chapter 7. Whoever is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty, come and drink. Anyone who follows me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever, whosoever would believe in him. He, this is, this is the, the fancy pants, is the Christo-inclusive. He, he, is, he is singular in that he is God. Jesus, Jesus alone is God in the flesh. There's no other name by which we might be saved. But he says anyone. Anyone, come, drink. He comes to earth to seek and to save that which is lost. He manifests mercy. Go home later today and think about that woman caught in adultery. I mean, think about how terrifying that would have been, how humiliating that would have been. 
And, you know, it's interesting that um, Jesus says to the, to the men, he says, you who have no sin, go ahead and cast the first stone, which is brilliant because he doesn't disregard the law, but he just holds the men up to the law. And one by one they turn away and they leave. And he says to the woman, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And it's interesting because the, I don't know if she knew this or not, but the only one who actually could still condemn her had the right to condemn her, and per letter of the law, should have condemned her, was looking her right in the eye. And her, her guilt was not in question. Her guilt was certain. She was caught in the very act. And friends, our guilt is certain. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But this woman looked into the eyes of God in the flesh, and she heard the most miraculous words that we could ever hear. And it's the words that he said to her, and it's the words that he says to us, if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Praise God. We hurt. And I heard an old friend who was in the, the psychology business a long time ago say that hurt people hurt people. And we do. We're hurt. We're, we're addicts, we're depressed, we're anxiety-ridden, we're, we're worried about everything, and we, we do horrible things to one another out of fear and out of not trusting and out of lashing out and out of trying to preserve our own little world. And we've done horrible things. We've done horrible things because we've deviated from God's law. We're outside of the relationship that we had with God because of sin. We lost it in the garden. And Jesus comes to earth and he says, listen, I am the light of the world. Look at me and you see God. Look at me and you see the law. Look at me and you see mercy. But then look at him and you see judgment. You see him on the cross. And the part of this, if it's, you know, our culture has a really difficult time. They really don't want to ad admit. They don't like to hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no, one, no way to the Father. There's no way to God except through him. Our culture doesn't want to hear that. And our culture doesn't want to hear that they're sinners. We don't want to hear that we're sinners. But we know that we are. Look at the news. It's horrible the things that we're doing to one another. It's it, it causes anxiety attacks. It's unbelievable. We are sinners. But on the cross, we, we, see, we see the righteousness of God. We see Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve. So great is his love that he's willing to do the, the work of tough love and come after us and tell us that we're sinners. Jesus said, those of you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more your heavenly Father who is in heaven. Don't get it twisted. We're sinners. He looked at this woman in John chapter 8, and he, he knew, and she knew. But because of his work on the cross, she didn't take the stones. He did. He went to the cross, and he paid the price. But because he lived the law out, never sinned in word, word, thought, or deed, and was perfectly righteous. He resurrected from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient to save sinners, and proving that he was who he claimed to be, and that is God in the flesh, and nothing less. And that perfect gift of righteousness is what he gives back to us. One of my, one of my favorite verses in, is in Colossians, and it says that we have been made holy and blameless and above reproach. And if you can relate to that woman in John chapter 8, if you can relate to being malevolent and being addicted and lashing out and hurt and mistrust and fear and anger, if you can relate to that, 
Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And you are loved today, and he offers his grace to you today. You can have a perfect legal record before the eyes of God so that whenever you stand before God, when you die, and you will whether you believe it or not, when you stand before him, he will see you as perfect and blameless and above reproach. Do you believe that that's possible? Because if you're really honest, you know you're not perfect. You may not think you're that bad, maybe, but you don't think you're perfect and blameless and above reproach. Come on. Jesus, Jesus' blood shed and his resurrection and his righteousness gives, given to you makes you perfect and blameless and above reproach before the eyes of God. Because that's what's required for heaven. No sin is allowed in heaven. We lost the relationship that we had with God at creation. And Jesus came to give it back to us. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And that joy that was set before him was to be again with his Father in his glory and to take us with him. Because he is good, he is tenacious, and he is bold, and he is perfect, and he is God in the flesh. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. If you are lost, then you are exactly God's type. He wants you. And his son went to the cross and raised from the dead to give you righteousness that is not your own, but to give it to you as a gift. This is what is illuminated. This is the light that Jesus is. That's not all of it. That's just all we have time for. <laughs> Jesus is good. Thank him. Thank God for the gospel. Amen? Amen. Bow with me in a quick word of prayer. Jesus, thank you that I didn't just choke. Thank you that Josh got a Sunday off. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for revealing truth to us. Thank you for revealing the character of righteousness, the character of the eternal God. Jesus, thank you for coming here and living that out even when you were mocked and despised and betrayed, ridiculed, tortured and executed. You never sinned. You showed us how to be human all the way to the point of the most agonizing death. Thank you, Lord, and help us to be a people who by the power of the Spirit are more and more transformed in our minds, transformed by Scripture, transformed by the Spirit to be like you. Thank you for this room of people, Lord. Thank you that we can come here and gather together. I pray, I pray for anyone here who needs to be comforted, that they were comforted, anybody that needs to be convicted, that they were convicted, and anybody that needs to be converted, that you would move in their heart and convert them, that they would seek prayer, and that any one of us are here and available and ready to pray with, with anybody this morning, Lord. Thank you for this group. Thank you for this body that makes all of this work well. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.